Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Executive, a place where investors, operators, and entrepreneurs share their uh, life lessons and advice on how to make it at the highest level. Today, I'm so welcome, uh, so excited to be welcomed by a good friend of mine, who is Josh Chapman, the uh, managing partner of Convoy Ventures, which is a venture capital firm exclusively focused on the gaming industry. Uh, Convoy now is uh, invested in over 21 companies, is now onto their second fund. Josh, so good to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Matt. Absolutely. Uh, Josh, you know, I definitely wanted to get into, um, you know, Convoy Ventures and your, your very unique type of firm, not your traditional VC firm, given your focus on gaming. But let's talk about, you know, your background. What really led you into uh, raising a, or, you know, raising a fund and starting a venture capital firm? Absolutely. So my background is I grew up moving every two years across Asia, Latin America, and Africa. And while growing up in all these different countries, there were all types of things that we could be doing for fun. But one of those became gaming uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so we started hosting LAN parties. My parents got us a few computers and synced them up to play, you know, Age of Empires and Counter-Strike. And then uh, we got into Halo and was holding, you know, Xbox and pizza parties, uh, playing Halo back in Halo 1, Halo 2. And so gaming was kind of always deeply social for me. Um, fast forward to college, I studied business and uh, decided to go into finance, got a job at BlackRock and then uh, moved over to investment banking and then moved to equity sales and trading at Morgan Stanley, um, all in New York City. And then I was, you know, kind of, returning back to becoming a gamer, uh, primarily because like long days, I wanted to find some uh, way to relax. And so I got myself another Xbox at the time and started gaming again. And then I approached my co-founders, Jason and Jackson, and we decided that we always wanted to start something. And we talked about how gaming would be a great combination between our professional training and our personal passions. And so that's kind of what led to the idea back in like 2016. We're now you know, about six years into this, um, we're at, you know, today about 110 million under management. We're invested all across the globe and we're doing it right here in Denver. So it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. Uh, for, for the listeners that don't know, uh, both Josh and I spent uh, time in Africa, didn't know each other, but if Josh, your experience was like mine, the times where the power would go out while we were playing video games. And then sometimes <laughs> we'd have to get a backup generator and put petrol in there so we could play our video games. I don't know if you ever experienced yeah. that. Experienced that in your time. Yeah, yes. that's what uh, that was our focus was uh, the video games. <laughs> yes, the the most existential threat to playing video games was the power going out. And if power <laughs> went out, it was just all heck would break loose. Right, you're so angry at no one. Right, because there's no one in the room you could be angry at. You're just like kind of let out of right. frustration. So. Many, many times, especially if um, I remember playing solo many times and being in the middle of a campaign, I, I'm just about to get to the end of some like checkpoint or level and the power would go out. <laughs> so frustrating. So it's frustrating. not it's not like a Google Docs moment where it's saving your progress. Yeah. Not at all. Not uh, at all. We've come a long way since then. I love it. Um, well, and Josh, you're. You're one of the only uh, American venture funds uh, that are focused exclusively on gaming. You know why gaming, and why do you why do you feel that the industry uh, is big enough, or was, um, I guess, definable for you to go invest exclusively in it? Absolutely. So first off, when I first got into this, there were two billion gamers in the world. Now there's over three billion, uh, just about six years in. So wow. the growth rate of just gamers itself is growing. 
Secondly, I assumed that there would be so much dedicated asset management around this because a few numbers around this are the public market cap of video game companies globally is about 2.1 trillion. That's larger than the global market cap of cryptocurrencies. And so the 2.1 trillion public market cap, not even including private companies. And today, dedicated asset management around gaming is around four to 5 billion. So is there an argument that you could turn as a cohort of gaming funds, four to 5 billion into some fraction of a $2.1 trillion market cap? I think there's a strong argument that you're going after a very large addressable investable market. And so that's kind of how you back into the math of, is there something here to return capital at scale? And that's kind of how we landed on, yes, absolutely. And that's why we're full steam ahead in this space. And, and what was it like when, you know, you've obviously uh, raised your second fund, but raising your first fund, having no prior venture experience and saying you want to yeah. invest exclusively in gaming, how did LPs respond to that or potential LPs? Oh, it was so hard. It was so tough raising our first fund. I think every first fund for almost every manager is, is quite hard to raise, um, especially not having a background in venture capital. That was also additionally hard. I think if you're spinning out of Sequoia or Excel or Andreessen, it's probably a little bit easier than what we did um, because you have this you know, track record or experience at a top firm spinning out. But for us, it really came down to, we had a specific thesis on the space that tech platforms and infrastructure would be a better way to play this space because the multiples are higher than on content. Little reference point there. Tech and platforms trade at between 10 to 50 times revenue. Content, uh, like a game studio itself, trades around one to four times revenue. So the return profiles and economies of scale are very different. So our thesis was interesting. Secondly, we were a little bit younger, which at, in gaming works really well. If I was launching a real estate fund, uh, less experience might not be a great asset to raising that capital, but for us proved to be pretty effective. Um, and then thirdly, we just hustled and out hustled and wrote content and, um, got some amazing people to back us in fund one, which we were thrilled and so honored to have their support. Our first fund was about 11 million. Um, our second fund is 65 million, which we're investing wow. out right now. And so we made that jump, but that jump was much, going from fund one to fund two was much easier than fund zero to fund one, for sure. I do want to double click on, you said on the hustling part and, and doing content, what kind of content were you doing, you know, that, that helped you raise that first fund and, and kind of give you that, the clout you needed? Yeah. Other than just referrals and, you know, networking with people, the content part of what we were doing was very, uh, weekly newsletter. Uh, which we still do to this day. Um, you can look at our website. We have weekly newsletters going back about four plus years now. Um, that was a huge way of very slowly on a weekly basis, building trust with people, whether you realize it or not, you started to think of this newsletter as uh, a place to read about gaming from someone who seemed pretty thoughtful about it. Now we're not always right. That's for sure not happening, but we certainly are thinking about this on a weekly basis. So the weekly content was really good. Additionally, we did some very extensive blog posts and deep dives into the industry, some of which never saw the light of day, some of which a few people read, and then a, a couple that kind of got mass distributed on Twitter. Um, we basically called out like the esports space and we were like, hey, these esports teams are not that valuable. We talked about media rights, that went pretty well. Uh, and we talked about a few other things too. So really blogging, and newsletter 
consistency uh, matters. And I think what I learned from that was being consistent at something builds trust at scale. I think it's something I, I sort of honed in on and that really has paid off and continues to this day. And we have, you know, we're sending out our newsletter this afternoon and it's going out to about 2000 investment groups worldwide that, that read this. Um, our open rate is five times higher than the average in finance. And so we're, we're pretty thrilled with it. It's a strategy we're actually doubling down into now by eventually we're going to launch our own podcast. We want to host our own investment summit. And so Matt, you're, you're a couple steps ahead of me on this podcast. <laughs> but, uh, so I'm, I'm learning as we go here. For sure. I, I can share a few things about microphones. Um, what, um, you know, talk about the newsletter, something that really caught my eye was talk, uh, on the education piece. You talked about how there's more, um, how, how gaming is going to have, is starting to impact the education space, but also like the gamification of everything and how that's playing into so many different industries. Can you share, you know, what's your thoughts on that and, and how you're seeing gamification impact a lot of industries? Absolutely. So the idea around gamification is right in the name that there are, uh, customer retention tools, there are uh, customer loyalty programs, there are product enhancements that you can make regardless of what industry and whether you're in healthcare or education or real estate or, or finance or wherever you are, that there are certain techniques that you can use to create a better customer acquisition, a better customer retention, and a better product over time that monetizes better. A lot of those practices have been practiced in gaming, hence the word gamification. Uh, and are now bleeding out as best practices across a variety of industries. Ideas like, hey, we should probably prompt our users on a daily, weekly, monthly basis via notification to come back to our platform or app, right? Well, gaming's been doing that for a very long time. Others copied them. Mm. Additionally, like, hey, what if we give people coins as rewards for any action, right? Whether it's uh, buying a cup of coffee or whether it's driving 100 miles in your car or whether it's credit cards, right? That the gamification of stuff was actually originated in gaming of earn coins by running down a cavern or playing this game, right? So it's fascinating to see uh, the good parts of that affect a variety of industries, and it's happening right now. Um, I think there's definitely a big difference between a gaming company and a gamified other company, right? And so for clarity's sake, we invest in gaming companies, not gamified something else. And so the two areas that we're most excited about right now where gaming is being leveraged outside of just pure gaming like Halo and stuff like that is uh, in education, which you referenced, which we're super excited about through an investment in Legends of Learning out of the East yeah. Coast. And then secondly, in healthcare, uh, things like mm. VR meditation, uh, VR uh, rehab. So things like in VR, you can like move your wrists in certain ways and it could actually measure your improvement over time. Uh, we even got pitched a company around stroke recovery using virtual reality headsets, which allows healthcare wow. professionals to monitor people at scale remotely. Um, some of this stuff is really powerful and gaming is sort of at the forefront technologically of how we make this stuff happen. And we're, we're thrilled to invest in it. You know, the, the VR sets, you know, really take us into our, our, the next question of the metaverse. There's been so much said about Web point Web 3.0, the metaverse, Facebook changed their name to Meta, they're big believers in it. What is your take on the metaverse? And it's a very broad question, but how does this play out? Absolutely. Great question. Very hotly debated right now and certainly topical. 
in essence, the idea around Ready Player One and that movie that everyone has watched by now, if not read the book, that there will be one metaverse that rules them all where we all hang out is a farce. I firmly believe that that's not where we're heading. There is not going to be one homogenous place where all of us hang out. In the same sense that there is not one homogenous social group that dominates all of the world. For example, some people like to ski, some people like to go to a brewery, some people like to play video games, some people like to hike and bike and run. That's great. Well, that starts to impact your social groups and who you like to hang out with. That impacts your fashion choices. That impacts the type of friends you have. That impacts a lot of things, right? The diversification and the, um, the breadth of human experience is something that's actually kind of beautiful, right? That African cultures can thrive just as much as Latin American cultures. They can thrive just as much as Japanese culture. And it goes on, right? So this idea that anyone could create one virtual world where everyone is happy is, I think, a, a, a total farce and not, not where we're heading. What I do think is happening is that just like we have TikTok and Snapchat and uh, Instagram and uh, other social platforms or social circles that people are a part of, that that's also where we're going with the metaverse in 3.0, right? Web 3.0 is basically Web 2.0, Web 3.0. We're living in Web 2. We're now moving to Web 3, which I think is just going to be a new, a new variety of virtual world experiences that you will pick and choose, right? So I might want to play in this world because it's uh, more fun. You might want to play in this world because you can make more money, right? Those are two different types of worlds with different motivations. Both are good, right? Some people need to make more income. Some people need to relax and have more fun. Both are inherently moral and good things, but they're different worlds. They can't necessarily always be one and the same. So where I think we're going is eventually Facebook becoming meta is them becoming essentially a gaming company. If you think about their logo, that meta logo is a gaming controller as much as it is an infinity symbol and as much as it is a M, right? And so I think that the metaverse is being spearheaded by gaming because virtual worlds virtual hangouts and virtual currencies is a 50 year old concept in gaming that is nothing new to our industry, but to everyone else, people are, it's very novel and very, it's a crazy idea. I don't necessarily think that we're all going to be in VR headsets either, right? I don't think we end up spending more than a couple hours a day in VR unless the technology becomes so much better than something that's just on your face. Right. And I think that that's, that's got to change. And so um, it's what's the phrase? People always overestimate what we'll accomplish in five years, but underestimate what we'll accomplish in 20. So for the next five years, I don't think we're going to some metaverse world. In 20 years, I don't want to pontificate because I have no idea, but I, I'm excited to see what, what it brings. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my view on, on this. I, I think that as an investor, I've always been a firm believer that things that augment existing human behavior are amazing things to invest in. Things that change human behavior are horrible ideas to invest in. So the thought that everyone wants to be in a VR headset 10 hours a day is a change in human behavior that I will not bet on. But ideas of, hey, instead of listening to calmer headspace, maybe listen to a VR meditation thing with visual therapy. That's just an augmentation on what we're already doing. And that is a, a very exciting investable opportunity.
So that's interesting. That's how I think about this space. No, that's a great perspective. And it, you're, you're even just talking about VR headsets, right? I mean, those came out how long ago? And, you know, they yeah. they took off for like a, a quick sprint and now we're like coming back now that technology is getting better and there's more use cases for it, right? Like even the video games they used to use with VR headsets were, were not that great and now they're getting better. Mm-hmm. And so now mm-hmm. they're like coming back into the fold. So it's it's interesting to see that progression. Um, Definitely. You've now made over 21 investments or, or is there over 30 now? Over 30. Um, wow. But uh, they're not all public, so I think the public number is about 20. So, okay. uh, <laughs> but we're over 30 now. Okay, yeah. public number is 20, over 30 investments. Uh, what would you say have been some of your, your biggest learnings having done this and investing over 21 company, or over 30 companies now? Absolutely. The biggest lessons I learned is trust your gut when it comes to founders. Um, really trust your gut around the, the founder that you're meeting. If it's not the right fit, just call it. Um, secondly, don't try to fix a company, just try to help a company. I think that sometimes you, you look at so many companies that you learn a bunch of lessons and patterns. And then when you see a company that where you see is sort of like a diamond in the rough, you want to try to fix some of their other stuff. Um, there's a big difference between advice and fixing. And I think we've shied more towards advice now than trying to fixing the problem, whether it's a cap table problem or whether it's a capital raise issue or a product issue. Um, I think that you know, we, we can't fix it, right? It's the founders that are responsible for, for fixing it. It's their company at the end of the day. Um, we're a minority investor. And so that's sort of the role we have to play is sort of a minority role impact on the company. So those are a couple lessons. I'd say that we're very comfortable investing internationally. So there's nothing there that's a lesson learned. I think just every geography is a little bit different. Yeah. I'd say that to, one of the things I think about right now is like how to think about the future of venture capital. What is the next 10 years of venture capital as a business look like versus the last 10 years that's occupying my headspace a lot right now, probably over 40% of my time is spent really thinking and working on this, um, that, you know, we have to be more supportive of our companies. We have to build out teams that operationally help them out. We need to be building out better, content, better talent help, better partnership work, better summits, better podcasts. Like we need to be thinking about how to build out a full convoy platform that supports them better than just cash and occasional advice. Right. And I think that that's been a huge way of venture capital has been done. And I think that it's just evolving incredibly quickly for the next 10 years. That's interesting. So yeah. And you're right. That's, um, what was it? Um, Andreessen Horowitz was probably, I don't know if they were the first, but one of the big ones to really push the platform and reinvent mm-hmm. a lot of venture capital. And now you're seeing yeah, a lot of firms try yeah. to add a lot more than capital. Um, yeah. To you that talk- point, they have, a, they have a ratio of investment staff to non-investment staff. Um, I think their non-investment staff outnumbers their investment staff by something like four or five to one. Right. So they have an an insane back office platform staff that supports the existing companies that the investment team is making. So the investment team becomes over time, a smaller percentage of headcount than, than the whole thing. And I think you're absolutely right. They've spearheaded this in a big way. And everyone, um, I think they got a lot of flack for it, but they crushed it on content. They crushed it on support. They crushed it on speed. Uh, Their brand is amazing because I think they were able to do those first few things well. So it's a great example and one we look up to a lot 
for sure. And as venture capital gets you know more competitive, you're seeing that as like this is our competitive advantage is that when entrepreneurs are looking at where to take capital from, we're so much more than capital. Yes, it's definitely two things. One that you're so much more than capital on a platform support side. And then secondly, that you have an expertise in their industry of focus. I think those are the two things that are going to separate the uh, average firms from the best firms, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a sub-average firm, you're done. But if you're an average firm, I think that's that's where you start to, you'll delineate. Really founders will be the ultimate ones to delineate. Yeah, so. really interesting. Um, you know, with investing in so many companies and you talked about identifying, uh, patterns in companies and, and knowing which companies to invest in, do you guys have a set investment philosophy or principles you live by, or, you know, what have you built a thesis? How does that work internally for you as you evaluate companies? Yeah, for us, we have a extensive underwriting process that takes about three to nine weeks and it varies depending on the company. We can move faster. Of course, we could take longer. Uh, but it's really roughly in there, three to nine weeks is kind of a, to run a full process before signing a term sheet. Then signing a term sheet takes, you know, the full docs can take anywhere from two weeks to eight weeks, depending on how fast it moves. But the things that get things over the finish line for us is uh, a keen understanding of the team and why they built this. Second, that they are addressing a external problem that needs to be solved versus an internal problem that they think needs to be solved is a very big difference between like, what's the premise of this idea? Um, sort of like a who cares question. Yeah. Um, then it kind of gets into what's the market sizing. And then on the quantitative side, we look at uh, valuation and entry point, right? So putting in, uh, you know, capital at a $15 million valuation, with XYZ assumptions around this sub companies, sub vertical of this company, can we return our funds? And sometimes there are great businesses that we can't invest in because our model and everything else we're learning about the company, it is a very low likelihood it will return the fund. It's not a low likelihood that the business will be successful in the sense of growth and employment and profitability, but I also have to do my job well, which is a delicate conversation uh, with founders when I'm like, Hey, we're going to pass, but it's not because I don't think you have a good idea. It's just at a $50 million entry point, I can't justify this, but I do wish you the best and let me know how I can help you. And is that due to market size? The market's truly not big enough. It's it, each one's a little bit different, whether it's like a services based business or if it's an esports related business, those market sizes and scale are smaller, but if it's like gaming FinTech or gaming platform like a discord it's not the market size issue it could also just be the entry point right so mm. investing at a 100 million dollar valuation on a pre-revenue pre-product company just makes no sense there's no risk reward uh balance there uh, but investing into a launch product at a 20 million dollar valuation um, that's not too crazy um but also valuations shift every three months in venture so yeah. It's a moving target for sure. And, and you've obviously got to stay on top of valuations. And there's there's a ton of things for you as the managing partner uh, to stay on top of. You know, you talked about you're now thinking about how do we grow this to be a much bigger platform for the companies we invest in. Is that your main focus right now or where are you putting most of your your time and effort? I think my time and effort is split uh, primarily across a few things uh, alongside just, you know, everything you do as a business owner. But uh, the main things are 
how do we be the best in class? And I think we build out a platform team, we build out a full support structure. I think that helps us be best in class. Two, how do we get in front of the best founders? That's the another thing I focus on a ton. So one, how do we export the existing portfolio? Two, how do we find the best founders next? So that has a lot to do with like newsletter writing and thought leadership and staying out in the market and um, having standing calls with great people in the industry, whether they're uh, founders, investors, or strategic partners of ours. Um, so staying on top of things. And then I'd say thirdly, it's uh, what's the culture we're creating at Convoy uh, for our internal staff? Mm. I think about this a lot because for us to pick good investments and support these investments well, it really starts from an internal culture of is everyone fired up to go to work? Is everyone excited to do what we're doing? Is everyone feels supported, cared for on a holistic level? Um, and I think that, you know, the culture of the venture firm starts in the middle and then you find great companies because you have a great culture. Otherwise you'll find a few companies and then the culture sucks and then it just means you got lucky. Right? Yeah. So how do you create a repeatable system? And I think it's about building out a great team. So this year we're seven people, we'll probably grow to 10 or 12 people this year. Next year we'll grow to 15 or 20 people as a venture firm and all here in Denver, which we're really excited about. So you know, also the in-person component of a, a venture is certainly not common right now. A lot of people are going yeah. remote. We're, we're absolutely not doing that. We're absolutely going down the path of we're better together, right? We're better in person, especially when you're doing things that are very see around corners, think about the future kind of stuff, which is what venture capital is, right? We're thinking about what's the world going to look like in five years and can this company service that? That's some pretty big, broad conversations. Um, we're just better in person on that front. That's so fascinating, right? Because you're, you're gaming you know, investment company, and yet you're bringing, you know, people back, you want people in person. What are the things to you that have just been on, you can't replace, you know, online that like, what yeah. kind of things do you do as a team that you're like, this is so much better when we're together? I'd say in no order, but it's a couple things. One is when you're in person, you can pick up on body language and kind of what the other person actually means versus what they might be typing on Slack or what they might say on a call or even on a video call. Yeah. Like you can just pick up on more of that body language. I'd say a second thing is you get more of the spontaneous, right? Um, hey, I, I had a quick thought. Do you mind if I just bug you for a quick second? Yeah. And that thought could be nothing or it could be amazing, right? It yeah. could be, oh my gosh, that's such a great idea. And then you can brainstorm. That's really hard when you're remote because Yes, you could schedule a call, but you might miss that moment of spontaneous brilliance, right? Yeah. Which I think all humans are, are are capable of, but it might be random, right? But some of the best ideas are just kind of hit you at random moments, right? They don't hit you on your scheduled call about that topic, right? Um, additionally, it's more time efficient. Uh, I can talk with you for two minutes, or we could set up a 15-minute call that blocks off our calendar. Humans are also... Uh, sort of have a proclivity to, if it's a 30 minute call, we'll fill it for 30 minutes. Yeah. Right. But maybe, you know, both of you are super efficient. You could have done that in three minutes. Yeah. Um, so there's a few things like that that make us very, very excited about team culture. Um, and that's kind of why we're, we're 
being pretty stringent here. And yeah. it's, I think it's going to pay off. I think it is paying off. I think it will continue to pay off. I love that. It gives us an edge. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, when when all your competitors are remote, you're probably excited about it. <laughs> I'm thrilled. That's amazing because I think we're going to outperform them. So I think it's great. I love it. Um, you know, as we as we start to wrap up, I, I would love to hear, you know, I'm sure you've got a ton of advice as you were starting the firm and uh, continue to get advice from uh, people uh, that you respect. What would you say has been the most helpful or the best advice that you've received in this journey? Um. Couple things, writing uh, online is one of the most powerful things people can do because it allows people to understand how you think at scale without you having to do a bunch of one-hour calls. I I'm shocked at how um, little people utilize this. Mm. Um, you can just put your thoughts. Nobody cares if you're necessarily wrong. They just want to understand how you think. So, someone advised me like just write, just write, just write, just write. And I started doing that and it paid off. Um, secondly was start slow on the check writing side. I'm really glad early on that we wrote small checks and slightly bigger checks and slightly bigger checks and we stayed disciplined. And we grew from a $100,000 check to now we're writing $3 million checks. But we, we stair-stepped into that very, very progressively. And, and, and you can really just watch it, right? We didn't jump around too much. And really thankful because early on, I wasn't as good as an investor as I am now. The same is true in three years from now, I think I'll be better yeah. than I am today, right? So this idea of kind of stair-stepping in was really good advice that we got. And at the time it was hard because we were like, no, but this opportunity is amazing. Like, let's double down. And I'm just so glad we didn't because sometimes we were just flat wrong. And so uh, sort of capped our downside a little bit. This, uh, yeah, go. Yeah. Sorry, no, go. You have a third. Uh, I'd say a third one would be it comes back to that thing of trust your gut is really trust your gut. If it's not right, it's not right. Walk away and you know, try to do that better and better over time. But I'm so glad I was told that sooner. Uh, just really trust your gut on the types of founders you work with, the people you hire, the partners that you agree to a standing call with, uh, whatever it is that you just trust your gut. If it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. Yeah. And you should probably just move on. Yeah. Trying to get better at that. True in so many things. Um, last couple questions. Has there been a book, you know, for you that, that has been most impactful in your career or, or even your life? I'd say personally, my favorite book is Ender's Game by Orson Scarcard. Uh, I love this book, sci-fi, yeah. strategy, uh, the dynamics, the it's such a great book. And I've read it, reread it multiple times. I'd say professionally. Um, I really enjoyed uh, recently at uh, just top of mind, I really enjoyed reading the book Blitzscaling by Reed Hoffman. Yeah. I just found it so true that if you're going to blitzscale and grow a company, you got to move kind of emphasizes action over planning. Yeah. Um, which is how Mark Zuckerberg built Facebook and just go, go, go. Um, I see those two books come to mind pretty quick. Um, uh, a couple very old books I read when I was in finance around like, you know, fundamentals and investing. Yeah. Super boring. I say that another <laughs> thing I, I like good stuff, but so boring. Yeah. But see, another thing I really enjoy, it's not a book, but 
a year ago, we had the entire team every week read one of the Warren Buffett letters that he does every wow. year. Yeah. We started in the 80s, and then we read all the way to the dot-com bubble in, in 2000. And it was just fascinating to see how he talked about people, how he talked about uh, integrity, how he talked about how he thought about business building and value creation, and to see this like every year, sort of the evolution of him as an investor. It inspired us so much that we now do a quarterly letter to our entire uh, investor base that invests in Convoy. And um, it's certainly not even close to as good, but it's it was inspired by that at least. And I was super impacted by his letters. And like you said, it makes you think more clearly. It helps you put your thoughts on paper. The the thing that's been interesting um, talking to you is it seems like you, you've set a team up that you can really kind of step away from the fires and the crazy day-to-day stuff to write content, to think, to read letters, you know, from Warren Buffett. Have you set out intentionally to do that, to make sure that the team is constantly learning and growing and, and set that, you know, is that a system that you've created and set aside that time? So on the newsletter stuff, I used to write all of them. And today we thankfully rotate the writing responsibility across the firm. And then we all weigh in and then we all like hold the final pen. So I often hold the final pen on a lot of our content is like the last one to review uh, before it goes out. But like really credit to our team, I wanted them to start writing to repeat what I had done right yeah. when I started the firm is I wanted not to be the bottleneck of content writing for the firm. So I force all of them on a rotating basis to, to write and write and write, and they're getting so much better and so much better at it. You can really see it. Um, naturally, there's lots of content and input when you have a team of seven people contributing to it's one better piece. and better yeah it just gets really so much better over over those hours that we that we edit it but um we definitely have like the blitz scaling thing we had the whole team read it right so we all read it together and the warren buffett letters we all read it together so i am trying to put these sort of things in place so that it's not just us as managers as the founders reading stuff and then coming back with thoughts but us all kind of going through it together because there are thoughts that our you know associates share or, or our principal shares and they're just awesome i didn't think about it that way so i think um those are a few things we're trying to do i think as a business owner it's impossible to stay away from the fires too much because at the yeah. end of the day it's sort of like your cause on you as a business owner but um trusting your team is something i'm you know working on practicing as much as possible and thankfully we're hiring great people that are certainly trustworthy so it's it's awesome yeah that's the key uh, well, as we conclude, any parting advice, you know, you would have for, you know, fellow entrepreneurs, investors, uh, you name it. Yeah. Um, if you're starting a venture fund, start writing as fast as you can so people can understand how you think, because any venture fund is raised on the back of, I want to raise capital to invest in something that we don't know yet. Yeah. So really it comes down to how you think as a GP. Uh, for entrepreneurs right now, I think this is an amazing time to build a company. Uh, this is, you have every resource at your disposal to build amazing companies. My advice would be get off the ground as fast as possible. Don't wait for an investor to get you off the ground. Fully understanding that some things do require capital, but some things don't. And I think it's always surprising when, when people are waiting for some investor to validate their amazing idea. Uh, I'd say try to move, try to get off the ground as fast as you can. Um, yeah, and I'd say just entrepreneurship in general, trust your gut is sort of something I've started to really hone in on. I think as you live more of life, life gets 
some of those simple phrases get much more real yeah. uh, versus like, you know, 10 years ago, I might've been like, oh yeah, for sure. I totally agree. But now after living it, I'm like, Ooh, it's very that's, true. That's, that's gold. Yeah. And it's super clear to you now. Well, <laughs> yeah. Josh, thanks so much. This has been an absolute pleasure interviewing you. And uh, I'm really excited to see uh, where Convoy goes and you know, your next 30 investments and how the first 30 do. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate you having me on.